This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Doug Myers, senior staff scientist for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in our Maryland office, joins me today. Welcome, Doug. Hi, thanks, Will. I didn't know you were a sturgeon expert. We're going to talk sturgeon. I hear you've been brushing up on your sturgeon facts and figures. Yeah, I was, and I kind of did some uh, immersion uh, therapy on sturgeon <laughs> as they became uh, listed for their critical habitat. So. You, 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 draw, you drew the short straw. Yeah. I said, Will wanted to talk sturgeon, and you drew the short <laughs> straw. Well, it's an amazing fish. Yeah, they're really fascinating. They're very ancient uh, fish have been around for many, many millions of years have uh, seen a lot and have had a lot happen to their habitat over the years. So and they, they need our help. And they're prehistoric looking. Absolutely. Yeah, big bony plates, about six feet long, uh, 80 to 100 pounds each, quite quite the fish. They have these big barbels on the bottom of their uh, face and they feel through the mud for food and scoop it up out of the bottom. Really interesting fish. They have a big snout. And I actually did a little research of my own here on the internet for about 30 seconds before we got together. The the species name, I'll never pronounce this properly. See if you can help me. Oxyspencer. Oxyrhin... Oh, Oxyrhynchus. Ox, say it again. Oxyrhynchus. That means sharp snout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there were even talks about um, colonial settlers saying the sturgeon were hazards to navigation. I would think they would be. As they're swimming around, they kind of lumber, and they would uh, be very large if you hit them with a, uh, a boat. You would know it. Um, uh, John Page Williams, our senior naturalist, has uh, sworn he's seen them uh, from his uh, uh, fish finder. Um, they make a very large echo, as you can imagine, if you would pass over one. One, and the species in the mid-Atlantic or on the East Coast are Atlantic sturgeon. There's two species, Atlantic sturgeon and short-nosed sturgeon. And short-nosed. And I also read that the largest Atlantic sturgeon ever caught was off in the Gulf of Maine, was nearly 850 pounds and 14 feet. Amazing. And, of course, the great fishery for sturgeon was really for their caviar, Correct. right? Yeah, that's the big caviar fisheries are not only what they were known for commercially, but it's how we know where they were historically um, because their fish themselves are no longer there. And, and when, when was the major fishery? What were the last years of the big fishery yeah, in Chesapeake? I would think probably late 1880s right. into the turn of the century. Right. Pretty typical for most and, fisheries. <laughs> and, and we're starting to see them come back. Yeah, we think maybe there's some natural reproduction? Right. There is a uh, one continuing spawning population in the James River. James and, River in Virginia. Right. And we're f the folks who are out there looking at uh, doing sturgeon surveys find the occasional uh, adult sturgeon in spawning condition in several other places in the, uh, in the bay. And so that's encouraging that they're out there looking for additional spawning habitat. So certainly overfishing was a real uh, culprit in their decline. Um, water quality also, I imagine they have some pretty specific water quality and habitat needs. They do, and they spawn in the freshwater tidal sections of rivers, uh, large rivers. They also need uh, gravel and cobble sub substrate. So ha hang on now, yeah. freshwater tidal, just as people hear these terms, that's where the tributary rivers to the Chesapeake 
are more fresh than salty. Yes. But they're still tidal, so they're still an influence of tide. Correct. So those are places like the Susquehanna from Conowingo Dam down to the flats, uh, the Potomac River just downstream of D.C., uh, James River just downstream of, uh, of Richmond. So those are the kinds of places where... Um, they are uh, spawning, their, their habitat is there. And lo and behold, these are the areas which we call head of tide. Yes. And those are the areas where big cities cropped up because that was as far as most ships could navigate. Right. Because they then ran into real shallow areas. Right. So there might be some correlation between people, development, the impacts of development and their habitat. Absolutely. So you can imagine if you require a hard uh, gravel substrate for spawning and you have lots of development and deforestation, the silt that would come in and fill those uh, spaces between the gravel grains may make much of that spawning habitat unavailable over time. What, um, what sort of um, help? I, I've heard that the University of Maryland and maybe Virginia Institute of Marine Science has done some work in trying to propagate and help get reproducing fish back in the water. Yeah. Um, hatchery operations are always uh, kind of dubious. It's one of the last gasp efforts you do uh, when a species is about to be listed uh, to try to get their numbers back up. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't address the habitat concerns, um, which are why their numbers are low in the first place. So uh, hatchery reproduction is always part of a recovery response for listed fish species, but it's, it's a, a very minimal response because it doesn't address uh, the habitat and water quality um, conditions that made them endangered in the first place. So, Doug, the Atlantic... Uh, sturgeon have been listed as endangered since 2010, 2012? 2012. 2012. And the, the next step after listing an endangered species is to provide information uh, about their habitat. Right. And, and so now we're starting to see that unfold in right. the process. So what's happening now is the Federal Register notice out for comments on the critical habitat designation. This is an important part of the Endangered Species Act. Critical habitat designation, designation. for the particular endangered species. Right, because it, it, it determines what that species needs when it's not actually present. Uh, when you just have the listing, you pretty much would have to kill a fish to break the law. Um, but after you designate critical habitat, then it starts to affect other activities in the bay that would affect that habitat and therefore the recovery of the species. So you've talked about the critical habitat, uh, freshwater, tidal, uh, gravel substrate, uh, possibly even some shellfish? Yeah, so they, they have an interesting life history. They are anadromous fish. They come up into the freshwater to spawn, um, but they also spend a good bit of their life uh, in the other parts of the bay, the lower uh, lower to mid salinity ranges, where they actually need a soft bottom because that's where their prey is. So a very wide ranging species, and they may stay in the bay for five to 13 years before they move out into the Atlantic Ocean where they mix with other populations of Atlantic sturgeon. So during that entire rearing and juvenile life history stage, the critical habitat designation requires to cover those areas as well. And the real kicker for uh, bay water quality is they require a dissolved oxygen on the bottom of six milligrams per liter. On the bottom. On the bottom, where Which they is, swim. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, and we don't have six milligrams per liter throughout a large part of the bay, at least in the summer and into the fall, because of the dead zone. 
So um, I've designated, as we're looking at this, the perfect poster fish for the blueprint um, because it needs what we all need by 2025 to get the dissolved oxygen up uh, across the bay, which will allow the Atlantic sturgeon to get back to its critical habitat um, spawning areas historically, uh, especially the Potomac and the Susquehanna. And again, people tune in and out of these podcasts. You use the term blueprint. This is the Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint the delineation of how much nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment needs to be reduced by a deadline of 2025 to put the bay back on a sustainable footing. Correct. And really is driving a lot of CBF's advocacy. Uh, we, were, we were very much a part of that with our lawsuit against EPA back in 2008. And heretofore, we've only used the Clean Water Act as, as a, an enforcement mechanism for that. Once this critical habitat is designated, we'll have now the Endangered Species Act potentially adding emphasis uh, to the requirements under the blueprint because um, we need to get the dissolved oxygen above 6.0. So talk a little bit more about the type of advocacy tool this could be and, and how and where might it be used by Chesapeake Bay Foundation and others? So specifically what we're looking at is uh, reconnecting um, the historical habitats of the Potomac and the Susquehanna, and also helping uh, to uh, support the expansion of the critical habitat into some of those tributaries where the fish have been found and they're looking for spawning habitat. And we think that there's good uh, evidence and data out there that the spawning habitat's there. So we wanted to add uh, the acreage of those areas into the, the critical habitat designation. But specifically, we need to reconnect the dots. We need to have a way for those sturgeon that would be using the Potomac and the Susquehanna, especially in the fall for spawning, to have the water quality conditions necessary to get there. And the James as well? or The James is already uh, in good shape. There's some uh, parts of the York, including the Pamunkey and the Mattapanai, that are uh, designated for critical habitat. The James certainly will stay on that list. And the question we have about the James is, you know, as the only extant or remaining uh, population of, of known spawning, uh, that's kind of dangerous. We need to expand the range uh, so that it's if something would happen in the James, we don't lose the entire population. A chemical spill. We've certainly for, had those in the James River. For example. Oil spill, et cetera. Right. Um, Every year or every other year or so, I hear some of CBF's environmental education staff uh, find a juvenile sturgeon in right. their fish, uh, in their nets when they're collecting fish for working with the students on the, on the boats. Uh, have you heard any of that? Is anything recently? I haven't. Uh, that kind of information is going to be very important because very little is known about the uh, juvenile uh, life history range of those fish and what kind of habitats they're found over, um, what condition they're in. So I think it'll be very important information as our groups and, and other groups are out there that incidentally catch um, juvenile sturgeon to be able to report that in those conditions to the authorities. Great. So, so all, those of us out on the water, people fishing, if you do catch a sturgeon and it's a very distinct looking fish, handle it with the utmost mm -hmm. care, keep her healthy, get her back in the water or him. And uh, we may yet again see in this Chesapeake Bay a sturgeon fishery, uh, the caviar, and all the excitement of having literally a prehistoric yeah. fish swimming in our waters. Yeah. Anything I should have asked that I haven't? Well, I, one thing that uh, I think is also part of our advocacy message, the, the, the Federal Register Notice only put out a very um, minimal, um, I would say, uh, 
idea of, of the kinds of activities that they would engage in um, uh, protecting and restoring the habitat, um, things like wastewater treatment plant discharges, for example. But uh, the way the Endangered Species Act works is um, any federal activity that would have a nexus to the species or its critical habitat is open for consideration for consultation uh, with the National Marine Fisheries Service. So we think a more broad approach to that, including yeah. agricultural cost shares that are done at the federal level through the Farm Bill, should be considered for um, review uh, to make sure they are adequate to be able to reduce the loads of nitrogen phosphorus uh, to the, the bay that are causing the dead zone, um, as well as a more uh, broad application of the NPDES permit system, not just the um, you know, permitted discharges like wastewater treatment plants, but also stormwater, the confined animal feeding operations, anything that has a discharge of nutrients should be given scrutiny under the Endangered Species Act um, so that we're sure that we're really doing what we need to to bring that dissolved oxygen level back to where it was, should be. And NPDES uh, discharges, National Pollutant Discharge, Discharge Elimination System permits. These are right. basically the permits for any sort of a discharge to waters of the United right. States. So what, uh, what can, will we be offering opportunities to our members and our advocates uh, to weigh in and to whom they should weigh in? Yes, we've already started with an action alert just to kind of introduce the, ob uh, the subject and get people thinking about it. There's a, um, a public hearing that was kind of difficult to uh, participate in, and so um, most of our members really weren't able to, to do that. Um, it was only one held for the entire East Coast up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, because there are other populations along the East Coast that are being listed at the same time. Um, but we do have the opportunity to meet the September 1st comment deadline. We'll have our own comments put together, and we'll have some suggested comments for our members to uh, also send in by that deadline. Great. So members should check the website. Um, if members are not a member of our action alert list, you can sign up for that to get action alerts by email on our website. And uh, this is just one of the many issues that we try to let our members know about and let them uh, make the choice as to whether they want to weigh in or not. Right. So I think it's really exciting to have a critter for the first time uh, really be able to uh, be mixed with the water quality message. And I think it's going to energize a lot of our members who maybe glaze over at nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment pounds and some of the other esoteric things we talk about in our action alerts. But uh, this will be really uh, very critter-focused and very exciting about uh, saving that dinosaur in Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, and especially a critter, a fish that is so <laughs> unique uh, as the Atlantic sturgeon. Well, Doug, thanks very much. Thanks this so is uh, Will Baker for Doug Myers. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and be sure to come back every two weeks for another edition of Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Thanks, Doug. You bet. Thanks, Will.